Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, could not have come soon enough. You know, we can already see the ingredients of what it takes to form a competent government made up of people who are qualified for their jobs ahead. The federal government will be stepping up its national plan for getting the vaccine out to where it should be. And the delays that we've had this year will hopefully be sped up to where we can get this vaccine out to as many people as possible. What's amazing about what's occurred recently is that the insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th, led by Unhinged, pushed America's biggest story off the front page and off the news cycle. And that is more people died of the pandemic on any given day during the last couple of weeks. It's out of control. And all I'm asking my listeners and anybody else listening to this show is that we are still in the midst of it. Listen to President Biden. He said he's got some bad news about this, that more people are going to die, many more people are going to die before we turn the corner on this. Honest man. He's given us the reality check, which we needed so badly in the last year. So please, over the next couple of months ahead, Keep your head down, keep your social distancing up, wear your mask, let's get through this. Enough of the bad news, okay? There's a lot of good things that did happen during this election cycle. And that is, first of all, the courts, Republicans, stood up to this threat that was being made by the current administration, soon to be gone tomorrow, but that was really a test of our system, and we made it through. Our system made it through. We have to remain vigilant, though, but I'm confident that we will. And look what happened in Georgia. Georgia goes blue. They elect Biden-Harris in November and then two Democratic U.S. senators to give the majority of the Senate with a tiebreaker to the Democrats. Now maybe we can shift and get something done, but the big news is that the Secretary of State stood up, and that's a Republican Secretary of State, stood up to the full onslaught of Trump. And as we all heard, he was trying to get him to reverse the election, but again, he didn't budge. Maybe I'll become a Georgia Bulldog fan. Now, some people have suggested that we do not try to convict Trump for his misdeeds. I think that would be a mistake. I understand the arguments, though. There is something to be said for that. If you want to heal and move on, let's do it. But his offenses are so grievous, you can't look the other way. I don't think it should be a really extended debate. Now, whether it will be or not, who knows? But did his words and what he said, did it lead to the insurrection to the Capitol? Yes or no? It's a pretty easy vote. So uh, what I want to do is move on to an interview that I'm going to have with Lawrence Pintak. He's an award-winning journalist and scholar who has reported from four continents, including 18 African countries and 15 Arab states. He is dean of the Graduate School of Media and Communications at the Aga Khan University in East Africa and was previously the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University, and that's where I met him. We've maintained a close relationship ever since. Pintech was named a Fellow of the Society of Professional Journalists in 2017 for outstanding service to the profession of journalism. 
So let's pick up with my interview with Lawrence Pentak from his temporary home in Edinburgh, Scotland. Voices of Experience airs Tuesdays at 4 p.m. and on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. My name is Paul Casey, your host. It's been a very tough year. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. We'll focus on how things will look in the post-pandemic world as far as travel, health, fitness, public affairs. Also, is this a good time to start your own business? The show is predicated on the fact that experience is our best teacher, and that's the people we talk with. That's Voices of Experience airing Tuesdays at 4 p.m. and on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. I want to start in our journey to Everett, Washington on August 30th, 2016, you talked me into going to a Trump rally. And I thought I was going to convert you, Paul. I know. And and you did a a very good job because uh, (laughs) I was at the end of it. I thought, wow, this is much different than I thought, but it was a lot different than I thought. And briefly, you got a press pass indoors. I had to be outside waiting in line with a whole group of Trump supporters and two things. I was so surprised, and I know you were too, of the numbers of people that were trying to get in. It was like four or 5,000 people. We were stretched around downtown Everett, but also the type of crowd that was there. I'm going to say that 40% were women. I came in thinking if there were 5% women, that would be shocking. And how many people were just not what I thought they were? So. I was glad that I ended up going with you to that because it was an education for me. And the rally was the second most uh, least important part to me. But the crowd that was there, they were much different than I thought. W- what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, we, we didn't see a single aluminum foil hat for a start. And we expected that to be the dominant theme. Um, we, we both walked away very struck by the fact that these were ordinary middle class people. Um, who just believed him. But one of the things that that was most telling when we were talking to folks and we asked them, where do you get your information? And we expected the answer to be Fox News. But the answer we got was, oh, no, not Fox. They've sold out. We go to Breitbart and we go to uh, Newsmax, et cetera. And that, of course, is the epitome of the problem. That's a very good point. And uh, I also... My observation was, because I was in that line for about two and a half hours, I was really worried going in because I'd seen the media coverage of Trump rallies and they were boisterous and, you know, he'd be saying sock him in the mouth and all that. I'm sure they were at some point. But as I went through, I found that the crowd, the anti-Trump crowd, there were the ones that were very boisterous, yelling and screaming. And I, as I was weaving through the line, was trying to figure out the point where I'd duck when all of a sudden the confrontation started. That's what was on my mind. But the Trump people were, I said at the time, evangelical. They were just shaking their heads going. They were looking like these other people were in cages, and they were shaking their heads, smiling, going, these people just don't understand. They just don't understand. They were calm. And then I realized later, I said they you know, looked evangelical. That's because they were. Mm-hmm. You know? And, mm-hmm. and, and just that whole dynamics that just really, as we, we uh, found out, that the people that we looked at, what we thought were going to be Trump supporters, were totally different. I remember when we both got in the car at the Everett train station, we looked at each other and said, this guy can win. Absolutely. 
it was it was so telling that these were you know ordinary middle class people, and they were not um, they were not the fringe. They were not the loony fringe that we kept seeing. And I say this as a journalist uh, that we keep seeing on TV. Um, and while you know some of them turned up at the Capitol, a lot of the loony fringe last week turned up at the Capitol, uh, and they they get the headlines, they make the noise, but that mainstream in quotes, of Trump supporters are the ones that are really shifting American politics. You mentioned something last week, you an interview on CNN, and you said something I thought was very interesting, and that is about when you're looking at these types of, and I think we were under an authoritarian regime, and um, but what you observed in the experiences of covering these countries and Africa and in, in various places around the world, Middle East, that you said something, one of the things that disappears and it's kind of a warning shot is the niceties, that the decency that erodes, and then that is an indication things are going downhill. Do I have that somewhat right? Yeah, you do. And, and you know, we hear a lot about, oh, deep down inside, human beings are really good, et cetera, et cetera. Sadly, you know, with all the wars I've covered, um, I don't necessarily buy that. Uh, I think that deep down inside, when the, the rules of civilization are stripped away for whatever reason, whether it's war has broken out and you're in the midst of it, or you have a president who's telling you you don't need to worry about the, the rules of civilization anymore, we really do descend into the Lord of the Flies. I did a, uh, a piece for the Daily Beast a uh, few days after the election, after the 2016 election, using that analogy of the Lord of the Flies with the the incivility, shall we say, um, of the Trump campaign. And, you know, all of that, you know, sadly has come, it came to a, to a, a head with the Capitol attack. Uh, we, once, once we no longer have to worry about the police coming or, uh, you know, getting fired from our jobs because we've done X, um, we quite often become really bad people. I'll give you one one example in Lebanon uh, back in the 80s uh, during one of the endless rounds of fighting in Lebanon. Um, there was a, uh, a village, a Druze Muslim village that we used to visit. And there was a couple there who were Lebanese Americans who had run a cheese shop in Arlington, Virginia. And they'd come back to Lebanon for a family wedding and fighting had broken out, and they couldn't get out. The airport was closed, and they were stuck there for like six months. Wonderful people, friendly people. You used to talk about restaurants in Arlington, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day, another round of fighting started, and everyone, they and everyone else in their village went into the next village and killed everybody and leveled their houses. Now, these are people who run a cheese shop in Arlington, Virginia, but the rules of civilization had disappeared. Hmm. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, Trump and his minions uh, just brought demonization to a new art form kind of along those lines. Absolutely. That that snide comments, uh, those snide comments in in his rallies about, oh, you know, drag the guy out. If if I you know, if I could do it, I'd punch him in the mouth. And that that fueling the, you know, I can say whatever I want to and so can you. And I can do whatever I want to, and so can you. That's a slow erosion of the rules of civility. And that, again, you know, ultimately takes you to 
people trashing the United States Capitol. You know, and one, killing people, and killing people. I might add. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, is there an example of a country that you covered in the Middle East and Africa or wherever that found their way back after having, let's say, an authoritarian regime, and now they're back and have some form of democracy going? Yeah, well, sadly, from the Arab Spring, the only country that that fits that is Tunisia, where it all started, where this poor guy, poor vegetable seller, fruit seller, uh, poured gasoline on himself and lit it because he was so fed up with the police trying to bribe him, uh, trying to demanding bribes, etc. And that set off the Arab Spring. And today, that country is a democracy. Um, and hats off to everybody on every side of the political spectrum. Sadly, it's the only example of that. Hmm. Interesting. Do you see a pathway for us to get back to where we were in some semblance of decency among the people? Or what are, what are your thoughts on that? I think we're in for a rough few years. I really do. Um, I don't see how you turn this around quickly. Um, you know, we don't agree that the sky is blue. And if we don't have that basis of fact, um, how do we begin to bridge the, the gap? Um, you know, there's all sorts of fact-checking operations around that are showing, you know, this is true, that's not true, et cetera. But you know, as Jeff Jarvis from uh, NYU said, fact-checking is good, but it's like bringing a wet rag to a war. I mean, if we don't, if we just... At a, at a gut level, a cellular level, we believe that we're being lied to, then we believe that we're being lied to. Nothing, you know, anybody who says you're not being lied to, well, they're just lying, right? Right, of course. And there are people who did say that, uh, well, you know, the Republicans or the Trump people really don't believe that this election was stolen. They really don't. They're just uh, don't like Biden, whatever forces. And then I kept reading the polls going, well, no, they really do believe this election was still in like 77% of Republicans. And that's a lot of people at some point, maybe it's not that quite that many now, but nonetheless, three fourths of the people believe that this election was stolen. Yeah. I mean, I get the four year, well, at some, some level I get some intellectual level, I get that four years ago, there were a lot of people who voted for Trump because they just couldn't stand Hillary. I get that. Um, but I don't get that today, 2021, January 19th, 2021, uh, hours before the president, the new president is sworn into office, that at least well, something like three quarters, more than two thirds of Republicans still believe it, it was a stolen election. I exactly. don't get that. But it all comes back to if you live in an information bubble and everyone around you, people on television, people on Twitter, people in the newspapers you're reading, on the websites you're reading, are all telling you it was stolen. Well, maybe it was stolen. You know something? I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here to jump back in history a bit and just see what your thoughts are. And I, I'm going to submit that and where we're at today started with the George Bush the first Lee Atwater, Willie Horton ad. Up to that point, if you look at all the political advertising, as much as I didn't care for Ronald Reagan, his campaign was positive, Morning in America. If you go through all the political ads up to that point, 
they were positive, basically, trying to give the best foot forward for their candidate. And certainly it was not a, say, a non-contact sport. But nonetheless, when that started, all of a sudden, all of the political advertising in the local level, state legislature, and then from then on, it's kill your opponent. And do you agree with that assessment or put aside election ads? You know, we all accept that election ads are skewing the truth at some level. The, the fact is that once you have and again, I say this as a journalist and as a dean of a journalism school, once you have pseudo journalists, pseudo news organizations telling you things that simply are not true then that undermines your ability to separate fact from fiction. And of course, we go all the way back, well, we go back to the Nazis and we can go way back beyond that, of the, the knowledge that the small lie leads to people believing the big lie. So you keep lying around little things and ultimately people are going to believe your big lie, as in the election was stolen. Um, this through history, dictators, authoritarian rulers have turned this into an art form of undermining truth with distortions and, of course, disparaging the free news media. And clearly Trump, Trump set out to do that, as many of his authoritarian predecessors had done, set out to undermine the news media. And he admitted as much in a 60 Minutes interview, uh, saying that, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially saying that, you know, I tell people that you're the enemy of the people so that when you report something bad about me, they don't believe it. Right. And it certainly worked. Sometimes I think he was a lot more sinister and smarter than we gave him credit for. We've talked before about this, but I want to bring it up again. And that's something called the fairness doctrine that we had guiding the media again from the late 1940s through 1987. And essentially what that was is that you had the responsibility of the networks. If you were going to get one point of view, you had to provide the opportunity for the other point of view. When that went away, I thought that looking historically was a major breakdown as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, but... Um, the fairness doctrine really spoke more to the issue of, all right, I'm going to give, you know, the president an hour of primetime television, so I must give the opposition leader, you know, whether Democrat or Republican, an equal amount. I'm not sure how the fairness doctrine would have dealt with Fox News, would have dealt with a news organization that's just making it up um, or overtly distorting. That would have been a, a very different challenge. That's that it, it's a very clean and simple thing to say. You give these guys a half hour. You got to give those guys a half hour. Uh, but when it's all woven into the news, that's a different story. When someone's out and out lying, you have to provide. And what Twitter did step up and do finally about you know Trump. They were throwing out red flags for a while going, you know what, this just doesn't check out. This isn't true. And having that as an umbrella or something like that in order to get a license, whether it's a cable, social media license or whatever in the country, that you have to have that sort of dialogue. I'm not sure that this is a path that would even be feasible, yeah. but I throw it out. I, I don't know. I, I'm just because that's where we talk about the lies and I'm in the media and I 
you know, did media buying and messaging. And basically around the table, if you tell someone something six or seven times and it doesn't go unchallenged, they're going to start to believe it. Of course, if you start talking about, um, ultimately you're talking about censorship and fine right. if it's, you know, if it's calling for violence, that's an e a relatively easy thing. Even that gets fuzzy in the language. Um, we only have to look at Trump's comments at that rally before the, the, they stormed Capitol Hill. You know, he would argue, I didn't tell them to go and do that. Uh, they interpreted him doing that. Okay, Lawrence, how are we going to solve all this? Got me. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a difficult thing. I mean, clear, clearly, you know, one, one would, you know, let's go back to actually believing that, you know, we have better angels and, and that, you know, deep down inside we're good, et cetera. I mean, one would like to believe that a, a Biden, you know, whatever you think of his overt policies around, you know, whatever I issue it is, medic medicine or taxes, that someone who is as middle of the road as he is, that middle of the road Republicans are going to, you know, see that as bringing us back to a, a place of moderation. But, you know, you get you get right back to I'd really like to believe that, you know, there's still a, a Reagan Republican core within that party that are, you know, going to come back to back to reality, back to their senses. We'll see. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I'm sure they are there, but so many of them, from what I'm reading, are afraid. They're afraid of Donald Trump and for good reason to poke their head out and say, hey, I don't agree with what he's doing. I mean, look what he does. If you can support, well, this is what I think the lesson is when you look at people like this and you got to be with them 100 percent. And I think Mike Pence just learned that lesson. It's not ninety nine point nine 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 percent. You have to be all in. And if you're not, Look what happens. Sure. So the the a big piece of what happens next is going to be what happens to Trump, of course. Does a is he convicted in the Senate? Um, does he fade into the woodwork? Does he start a TV channel? Does he try to maintain his relevance within the party? Clearly, we read that Mitch McConnell is even flirting with the idea of voting for conviction because he wants to be rid of the, the SOB, as it were. Um, <clears throat> how do the Republicans deal with the Cruises and the Hawkins and that the Looney Tunes fringe that are in Congress? Mm -hmm. And leaving this uh, discussion in an upbeat note, you know. Oh, this should be good. <laughs> well, you know, Biden did win the election and he won by many votes. We can talk <laughs> to Electoral College. That needs fixing. Probably not going to happen in our lifetime, if ever. But nonetheless, he did win, and he won by a considerable amount of votes, and, and they stood in line during COVID and did this. And, you know, we saw grassroots that really made the difference here. And hopefully, and I don't think that will go away, because people did see what could occur. You did have the power to change the direction of the country, and hopefully that will also seep into the minds of a lot of people. And maybe we'll have 100 million people voting next time for a leader anti-Trump type. Right. But, you, you know, you also. Yes. Yes. But um, just talk about Georgia. So would the Democrats have picked up those two seats if Trump hadn't 
refused to give up on this idea the election was stolen and as a result convinced people in Georgia it wasn't Republican. You mean threatening the Secretary of State of Georgia? Is that what you're kind yeah, of driving too. at? that too. Yeah. <laughs> and the governor. Right. <laughs> but but if, if he hadn't sent the message to those Republicans in Georgia that it's not worth voting because it's all rigged, would the Republicans be sitting with two seats, two more seats in Congress in the Senate and control of the Senate? Well, Great questions to ponder as we go forward. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Lawrence Pentak for his insightful comments on how other parts of the world are viewing the events in the U.S. since the election and also taking us right up through the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden tomorrow at noon at the Capitol. My wife and I are spending a little over three months in Palm Springs. We decided to come down here because um, it was predicted in the fall that COVID would have a major resurgence, which it has. So we decided why not be in the sunshine and ride it out versus let's say the more cloudy weather. And that's being generous the way I understand the weather's been up there um, since we left. But wouldn't you know it, that uh, COVID is out of control down here in Southern California. I believe I read correctly today that there are over a million cases just in LA County alone. So that reminds all of us, let's stay safe because help is on the way. I do believe President Biden is going to manage this thing much better than has been managed in the last year. And that's being generous. His goal is to get 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. So uh, let's wish him well on that journey. We're in it all together. Now, since we are in the Palm Springs area, I decided to have a conversation with Joe Wallace, and he's the CEO of the Coachella Valley Economic Partnership. Now, we all know that tourism is a major component of the greater Palm Springs area. Now, Joe really wants to expand tourism and retirees just being their main source of income in this area. He wants to entice businesses from other parts of the country to come here, maybe expand down here. He'll talk about that next week. So if you're thinking about making a change or perhaps, again, expanding your time between Seattle and wherever you live and down in this area, I think you'll be very interested in what Joe Wallace has to say. My name is Paul Casey, and along with producer Benny Mathers, thanks for listening today. Quote of the week, well done is better than well said. Benjamin Franklin. And finally, always remember that experience is your best teacher.